This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. My guest today is Leah Penniman, author of Farming While Black and co-founder of Soul Fire Farm. She is a Creole farmer, author, mother, and food justice activist who has been tending the soil and organizing for anti-racist food system for 25 years. And this is her return visit to Digging in the Dirt. She comes back to talk about her new book that is called Black Earth Wisdom, Soulful Conversations with Black Environmentalists. It's been said that Leah weaves together the lessons from today's most respected Black environmentalists, those who have cultivated the skill of listening to the lessons that Earth has whispered to them, and together we embark on a sensory journey through Black ecological thought. Well, welcome, Leah. I'm interested in talking about this. Thank you so much for having me back. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been playing your sister Naima's poem after I run my interviews, and it's getting a good response. I really like that poem. Yeah, something that I really love about my relationship with my womb and soul sister Naima is that, you know, I'm the scientist and she's the artist. And so I ask her with each of my books, can you create a poem that summarizes um, artfully and beautifully the central themes of this book? And and she has created poems for both Farming While Black and Black Earth Wisdom that encapsulate the spirit of the book. So I'm really glad it's resonating with folks. And for those who don't know, it's called Mama Nature, and it's it's really quite terrific. I'll be playing it again, I'm sure, maybe after this interview. So tell me about Black Earth Wisdom. Why did you feel compelled to write about your peers in the environmental movement, and especially, specifically the Black environmentalists? Well, I'll tell you the practical reason and then the, the esoteric uh, spiritual reason. So the practical reason is just like uh, Black agrarian contributions have been overlooked in the organic and regenerative movement and and you know farming while well black was this project to uplift the the amazing work of the Ovambo people and giving us raised beds and the African dark earth compost of of the farmers of West Africa and you know Dr. Carver's founding of modern organic and on and on you know similarly in the environmental fields you know a lot more folks should know about oceanographer Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and ornithologist Dr. Drew Lanham like these these need to be household names because they are at uh, on the frontier of helping us solve uh, the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis, you know, so there's that. But but I will say that the seed of it came uh, in this one very beautiful anecdote that I came across when I was researching for my last book, Farming While Black. And this is about Dr. George Washington Carver, who's our patron saint of organic ag, you know, two generations before Rodale, he was figuring out how to scale up cover cropping and compost and mulching and crop rotation and and very much laid the foundation for uh, you know, modern organics today. And and when he was asked by a friend, Glenn Clark, where did you get all of these ideas? Because he had thousands of inventions related to agriculture. He said, well, every morning I go to the forest in the pre-dawn hours and I listen to the voice of God through the trees. He said, <laughs> and I quote, yeah, like nature is God's unlimited broadcasting system through which he speaks to me every minute, every hour, every day, if I just tune into the right channel. And so this this spiritual and scientific intersection and this earth listening got me really curious. So, of course, I phoned up some elders, Dr. Claudia Ford, um, ethnobotanist. I said, do you talk to plants? She admitted to it um, and then gave me a few more names. You know, so so Black Earth Wisdom is weaving together of these conversations with Black environmentalists who, who still remember how to listen to the earth, how to talk to the earth directly uh, to give us information about which way to go. So you uh, interviewed 21 different people in different 
fields, so to speak. You know, there, there's there, there's some people who are just doing it, you know, with the community, and then there's scientists and all. So, what made you pick these twenty one? Well, there's actually forty voices. There's forty. Oh. <laughs> there's forty voices. Alice Walker among them. You know, Adrian Marie Brown, Rue Map, founder of Outdoor Afro, um, Dr. Carolyn Finney. You know, author of Black. Faces, white spaces, and on and on. And yeah, scientists, community organizers, folks who are working on the front lines in Cancer Alley, as well as people who are trying to save the phytoplankton. And, you know, it was difficult to choose because in this sort of spider webby process of asking, interviewing one person, then asking them to name drop, you know, I ended up with hundreds of names and I ended up building a directory on blackearthwisdom.org of all the people who should be in the book. But unfortunately, my publisher gave me a very strict word count. Uh, but it was important to me to take a survey of the field, you know, so this book addresses climate and water and soil and energy and agriculture. So so these major areas of, of concern that we have around environmental stewardship, um, as well as, as folks who are coming at it from a, a spiritual aspect. So we have the leader of the Ifa tradition, you know, interviewed and, and some other very respected elders in the Black spiritual community. Um, so my hope is that it's a snapshot and it inspires folks to dig deeper and learn more. Yeah, I love history and I love finding out new things. I don't think my audience probably knows maybe 80% of the people that you've interviewed here. It's really eye-opening, you know, the things that people are doing and what they've done. Oh, did you have any favorites? Well, you you can never ask someone their favorite. That's like asking <laughs> a parent for their favorite child. But I will say that um, one conversation that that just gave me absolute chills and really reframed for me my understanding of our relationship to earth was with Audrey Peterman. So she's a Jamaican American elder, um, one among the first black people to visit almost all the national parks, you know, served on the national parks uh, foundation. And, you know, she explained to me this experience. She had the first time she saw a night sky in the Midwest unencumbered by light pollution and that sort of dazzling expanse of, of, of stars, galaxies and under the black night. And, and she, was meditating on the fact that there was a time when all humans could read the sky. We could determine directionality, the calendar, the weather. Mm -hmm. uh, we could read the stories of our, our people in the patterns of constellations. And in that way, the sky, along with so many other aspects of the earth uh, or the universe, you know, the tree rings, the bird song, th those were a primary source. And as humanity has become more settled and urbanized and populous, we don't know how to read anymore. We've be become illiterate. So we're relying on tertiary and quaternary sources to get our information, which, which is kind of like this scrambled game of telephone where messages are being whispered from ear to ear and they end up quite distorted. And she feels that that's a dangerous way to be where we can't read our primary source and, and that the, the challenge of our time is to rekindle literacy in the languages of the earth. And a lot of other folks echoed that, you know, Lenny Sorensen was like, when I was growing up, every farmer knew that you put a corn seed in the ground when the oak leaves are the size of squirrel's ears. That's when the soil's warm enough. Hmm. But we can't even read the oak leaves anymore. We have to use a thermometer, right? So. <laughs> Isn't that kind of true about it all that we've sort of uh, either the we've lost the knowledge or it's been suppressed and that basically there's nothing new under the sun. We just have to do what the elders did and, and rediscover everything that, that was working. Yeah. And I think it's not so much that we're, you know, dismissing the incredible 
contributions of, of modern science or modernity in general, there's there's so much to be gained there, but there's a lot of things that we've lost and we have an a opportunity to catch up with our ancestors and kind of innovate from there. There were these three central motifs that came out of the interviews with, with Black Earth Wisdom. I've, I've mentioned one, which is Earth as text. The other two are Earth as kin and Earth as teacher. And we're thinking of these three modalities or worldviews in a similar way that we think about the scientific method. You know, the scientific method is very old. You know, I was trained in chemistry and biology, and yet we use it to innovate. We use it as a framework against which we make decisions about whether to admit new knowledge into our canon. And in a similar way, this Afro-Indigenous framework of treating the earth as a sacred text, as kin, you know, as family, as well as as teacher that we are bound to emulate gives us this framework for making societal decisions around which way to go for our collective survival and thrival. Hmm. So another person that sort of attracted me was Rue Mapp, her in Outdoor Afro. You want to talk about that a little bit? She has a, a unique approach to the environment and outdoor life. Yeah, so Outdoor Afro um, is the largest Black outdoors nature organization in this country. And you know, RUMAP is inspired, uh, as are many of my interviewees, by the incredible movement building work of ancestor Wangari Maathai, uh, who was the first African woman to win a Nobel Peace Prize for her planting of 51 million trees. And that was part of a, a woman's political movement for democracy and women's rights. And so the way that she mobilized large numbers of people in a relatively decentralized manner um, inspired Outdoor Afro and also inspired Girl Trek and some of these other other major groundbreaking organizations. So Outdoor Afro has a network across the country of highly trained and skilled volunteers from the Black community who take their members on excursions. So, you know, my daughter was actually an intern with them last summer. So they they paddle, they hike, they do wilderness first aid, backpacking, you know, all this stuff. But it's a culturally safe space and and the value of it was really underscored after the murder, murder of George Floyd when the thing that community most needed to do was to go and and lay their burdens by the riverside quite literally and they were able to do that through the the network that had been formed from outdoor afro so big shout out to Rumap and that whole team for their groundbreaking work yeah it's that's fascinating to me they so maybe since you're talking about Floyd that we should talk a little bit about your book and current events, you know, there's a, a lot of attacks, over attacks going on on Black history, the so-called anti-wokeism, the banning of stories of many amazing American African-Americans who have told their story in books. All these are falling under attack by the right-wing white society right now. Did, did you have some intent in writing this book to, you know, reaffirm that there is a history and that you, you know, it needs to be told? Oh my goodness. I mean, I'm beyond devastated to see the attack on on critical thinking, really, that's happening in our country. You know, it's not so much that I'm advocating for everyone in this country or society or world to agree with me, but we absolutely must have free access to ideas and to truth so that our young people can grow up knowing how to think and make decisions. Um, and I mean, Black Earth Wisdom itself, like the the contributors don't all agree with each other. And that's beautiful. You know, Lenny Sorensen, who's a culinary historian uh, featured on High on the Hog. If you haven't seen that Netflix series, you should definitely check it out. But I asked her about, you know, what is the earth saying to you? And she said, 
oh, I'm about as spiritual as a cast iron pan. Like <laughs> next question, you know, and that's great. That's really, really right. great. The you know? difference and is have, what we celebrate. I mean, <laughs> the difference is what we celebrate. And to have a democratic society, we absolutely must have freedom of, of information and you know, competing interpretations of the objective truth. So, you know, Black Earth Wisdom started before the most, you know, I started this research process years ago. So it was well before the most recent outlandish uh, attacks on on free thinking. But, you know, I stand firmly, sure. <laughs> firmly in the court of the librarians and the teachers and all of those who who want minds to be grappling with truth. Yeah, you like, I think, to connect the dots and tell the story. I'm reminded of the saying that history is written by the victors, and, and, and those in charge also can sort of try to eradicate it. That's what's going on. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so this anti-wokeism, just to finish it off here, I mean, it, it's like, you know, I, I did a, a check on what woke where it came from, you know, and I found out that Lead Belly wrote a song years ago called Sawmill Moan in 1938, and he advised the listeners in the song to stay woke lest they run afoul of white authority. And then you also have Marcus Garvey who said, wake up Ethiopia, mm -hmm. wake up Africa, you know. So it, it it goes way back. So they're they're trying to change the narrative by making wokeism come to the fore and then call it anti-wokeism, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it happens to be a four-letter word, but they're certainly trying to make it into a four-letter word when fundamentally the origins of of you know, to be awake or to be woke in movement communities has to do with, you know, what Paul Freire said in terms of we need to be aware of the conditions under which we toil. And there has to be a critical analysis of what's happening at the societal level so that we can make informed moves as a citizenry. So, you know, to be awake there is nothing inherently nefarious about that. Um, but I certainly agree with you that there's been a campaign to to try to undermine and and reframe the word to mean somehow anti-working class white or anti-practical, uh, which it certainly isn't. It has to do with freedom of ideas and information and the ability to make choices about how we engage in civic life. Mm hmm. So you think that there's a, a, a groundswell a, a bit in the black community to start embracing more of the, the of nature and more of uh, the agriculture aspects of um, the life that they have here in the United States? I personally think that, you know, corporate agriculture is disintegrating and I see a lot of people, a lot of movements, not just backyard gardens, but small farms and urban gardening and stuff happening. What do you think about all that? Is you think you see more of it? So you're asking if there's a case to embrace it. Well, I will say that amongst black and brown communities, like it's it's already been happening. It's just no one is really paying attention in the mm -hmm. white world. I mean, um, recent studies have been showing time and time again that the black and brown community is significantly more concerned about climate change and biodiversity loss than the white community. You know, my book traces back black contributions to the environmental movement thousands of years, both on the continent of Africa, but also since the, the earliest records during chattel slavery, we have eco literature coming out of, of enslaved populations. And, you know, whether we want to talk about John Francis Planet Walker's writing of the, the 1990 oil spill legislation after spending 20 years in, in silence and uh, not using motorized transport to, to protest the fossil fuel industry, or whether we want to talk about you know, Hazel Johnson, the founder of the environmental justice movement, or Hattie Carthen, founder of the community gardens movement. I mean, 
it's it's been happening. And so I think it's very important for us to rewrite the narrative that somehow there there needs to be a winning over of black and brown people to care about the earth or to be engaged. The real issue is is exclusion from green space. And you alluded um, to that a bit. You know, there's there's some pretty powerful studies, um, one recently of 900,000 Americans that shows that children who grew up in the most nature deprived areas have a 55 percent higher risk of developing a psychiatric disorder. And yet, right, three quarters of children of color are growing up in these nature deprived areas, not because they wouldn't love to have a community garden or a park or a farm, but because there's a, you know, a whole history of genocidal dispossession of land, you know, of the Klan driving black people off their land, of, of redlining ghettoizing people into certain neighborhoods that don't have green space, you know, so the, the the bigger issue is societally, how do we reframe access to green space and more broadly access to environmental benefits as a basic human right and make sure that all, you know, all Americans are going to to have that access from a very young age because it's quite necessary for survival. And yes, I agree. Industrial agriculture is certainly crumbling and, you know, we can thank indigenous communities globally, including Afro-Indigenous communities for giving us the, the toolkit that is regenerative agriculture that's highly productive, you know, that's climate resilient, that sequesters carbon, that increases biodiversity. So we mm-hmm. we have those tools in our hands and we have, we have to make better choices. We're talking to Leah Penniman. She has just finished writing a book. She's out there talking about it with us today with Black Earth Wisdom is the name of the book. It's Soulful Conversations with Black Environmentalists. It's, it's a great book, uh, Leah, and you know, a good follow up to your previous book as, as well. You know, <laughs> Thank I, you. You know, you do. You're very inspirational. I have to say. You know, I was at Connecticut NOFA. All the guys and gals that are BIPOC farmers in my area, I try to get them on the radio, talk to them about what they're doing, however small, however big, because they're the ones doing it in their communities, and they're and I love them. They're sort of salt of the earth, you know. And and I, talking to them afterwards, they found you inspirational. You know. And that I think that's a really great thing that, you know, you understand that building community is such a, a crucial thing. And and I think just so you know, I don't think people tell people, you know, they're doing good things often enough, but you're doing good things with with the people that I run into all the time. Oh, that means so much to me. And yeah, it was it was great. We had a lunch um, with the the group of farmers of color gathered at Connecticut NOFA. And I mean, they are moving and shaking. I just am so honored to know them building cooperatives and mutual aid networks and, you know, helping each other out. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And to your earlier point, you know, in many ways, Farming While Black was was the how, you know, it's the practical guide. And Black Earth Wisdom is the why that under undergirds the how. And so I think like, yes, we need to we need to compost and cover crop and do polycultures and all the things, right? And and the first book is is quite comprehensive in terms of addressing some of those details. But there's a a philosophical shift, a worldview shift that I believe is essential if we're going to survive as a species. There's, you know, there's no amount of carbon credit scheming or quantifying of ecosystem services under the guise of capitalism that is going to get us out of this mess. We we really need a different way of thinking. And that way of thinking is understanding that, you know, human beings are not the pinnacle of creation or the, you know, the perfection of evolution. We're the younger siblings. We got here late on the scene. And so the hawks and bears and tortoises, those are those are older brothers and sisters. And we owe them deference and respect and humility and listening. And when we reweave ourselves into kinship with the earth, when we 
you know, we see that forest over there as a relative, we're going to engage very differently than when, when we see it as a number on a spreadsheet or, um, you know, a cubic feet of lumber that we can get X dollars for. It's, we really need to shift from a, a monetization of the earth to a sense of the earth as family. Sure. Yeah, I'm preaching to the choir here. You know the yeah. the, the idea that we can just keep extracting and um, exploiting, and not just resources but peoples too, is you know we're not going to make it if we keep doing that. And that's my humble opinion. But so yeah, yeah, we're in agreement. <laughs> <laughs> so what can you impart to everybody that you learned from the people that you've been talking to about our ancestors? What's a really important thing that uh, light should be shined on? About our ancestors, you said? Yeah, about our ancestors and what we could do to bring that, what we're talking about, a change to to the fore. So I'll tell you something that's ancestral and futuristic. So there's this covenant of moderation that was inscribed at the beginning of time, according to Yoruba cosmology, right? So in the beginning of time, the age was called Obajomi Jomi, the age of the king who consumes water. And this was a time when all humans and animals and plants all spoke the same language, you know, according to their creation story. And there's a, a kind of fun little parable, so to speak, that talks about this covenant being forgotten and remembered in these early days. So so I'll, I'll summarize it in brief because it's a fun story. So there's a character called Mr. Byforce, and he's inviting all of his friends over for a collective work party on his farm. And new, usually with a collective work par party, you're obligated to like provide food and drink and music and entertainment, right, for your guests who are toiling on, on the farm with you. And his friends agree to come so long as their enemies aren't present. So like Grasshopper really doesn't want Hen to be there because Hen eats grasshopper, right? And hen doesn't want wolf to be there because wolf eats hen. And, you know, hyena doesn't want viper to be there because viper's poisonous, bites hyena. And and Mr. Byforce deceives them and says, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it, it's cool. It's just going to be your friends. But of course, all everyone's there and their enemies. And he lines them up next to their sworn enemy and then with, withholds food and drink until they become incredibly agitated, hungry, and late afternoon hot sun. And they pounce on each other and start gnashing and biting. Then Dewdrops comes and settles on them, and Dewdrops represents the Arisha of wisdom, Arunmila. So Dewdrops cools them off and reminds them of this covenant of moderation, of non-harming, of not taking more than they need. And so they, you know, apologize and embrace and and renew this covenant. But you know, as the story goes, as society has changed, we've gotten further from Oba Jomi Jomi, the age of water. We went to Oba Jegi Jegi, the age of wood. Oba Jeun is where we are now, which is the age of consumption. And the only way we're going to make it to that final age, Oba Ero Ero, the age of the antidote, is by remembering that we all share a very tiny life raft. You know, the biosphere is just 12 miles from top to bottom. All life on Earth depends on the resources in this thin line of, of biosphere. And so through a covenant of moderation and of mutuality, is is how we survive together so the big million dollar question is you think that we can do this <laughs> i mean it's hard sometimes leah to be feel optimistic when you look at two steps forward one step back i'd say when we're doing things that are positive and then you see the greed and the uh inaction and, and the and the purposeful exploitation of the planet without 
any idea of what they're going to do in the future if let's say the ice packs melt or this ocean's warm is uh, it's hard to get be positive can you can you be positive in face of all this stuff i agree you know and it's not that i have my head in the sand but i see hope as a highly practical stance and the reason is this you know if i were to adopt you know a stance of despair I would engage in in a hedonistic rush to get as much for for me and my family in the short mm-hmm. time we have left on earth, right? So I would be gobbling up resources and I certainly wouldn't be spending my time extending myself to care for the soil in these labor intensive ways or to, you know, feed my community and donate resources. You know, it just wouldn't that wouldn't be practical if I really was quite convinced we were near the end. Um but by engaging in a hopeful stance you know, I go ahead and do these things that have immediate benefit today and tomorrow, you know, for the land and the people. And in doing so, I make the immediate present better. And and those present moments may add up to a victory, you know, a promised land, or they may not. But at least in the meantime, you know, we're investing in in one another's well-being. And and so I, I advocate for hope as a practical stance, <laughs> regardless of whether I can predict predict the future. That's just, that's the way I feel too. People tell me, oh, the stuff you talk about, you know, I have environmental headlines for a planet in crisis called Gaiagram. It's four minutes of headlines I get all the time. It's really kind of negative, Kev. You know, I'm going, well, there's a lot of negative stories, but what are you going to do about it? You know, individually or collectively as a community, if we do something, we may be able to pull ourselves out of this. Exactly. And exactly. I can't live in total despair, like you said. I, I got to put hope out there. So that's why we've we, got to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why we keep even, talking like with people like you. Right. I mean, even folks who were enslaved, you know, for, for generations, people who were, you know, in concentration camps kept hope and they were the ones who survived and things did change. But it looked pretty bleak, I imagine, for them. It's <laughs> just, just as bleak as the times that, that we face now. So if our ancestors could, you know, be forced into the bowels of transatlantic slave ships and still be braiding seeds into their hair, imagining a future on soil, you know, then we can certainly keep our heads up and keep going. Leah Penniman, thank you for joining me. Your book is Black Earth Wisdom, Soulful Conversations with Black Environmentalists. Check it out. Thank you for coming, Leah. I really appreciate you giving me your time. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. Thank you.